Welcome, Werner, to another exciting edition of Vet Voices. I'm your host, Johnny, and today in our socially distant studio, we have a very special set of guests. First and foremost, though, let me introduce Adam. Adam, how are you today? I'm good, Johnny. How are you? I am great. I'm so excited. This is number two for this podcast. Absolutely. We're pretty excited. We've got a great story to tell and a great conversation to have today. I can't wait. We Vets, what do you do for We Vets? Uh, so I'm I'm part of the founding uh, steering committee of WeVets, and we we launched a couple months ago, and we went from ten or fifteen members across the company. Now I think we're uh, pushing on three hundred, and we've got a lot of great stories to tell. I love it, and you don't have to be a vet in order to be a part of the WeVets group. Nope, just uh, either a veteran or a veteran supporter, veteran family, military family. We're we're a company that believes in the military and everything associated with it. Um, so if you're a supporter or want to learn more. Come check us out. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, and I'm going to hand it over to you to introduce and, and kind of kick off this talk today. Very exciting talk. I can't wait. Good deal. Thanks, Johnny. Uh, like Johnny mentioned, I'm Adam. I'm an associate director of safety here at the company. Uh, I'm also a current member of the Nebraska Air National Guard. Uh, so today in the studio, we have two very special guests, uh, Steve with Warner Logistics and then also Brooke with Madonna Rehab. Before we dive in, though, I want to briefly set the stage for what we're going to talk about today. So 20 years ago, our country was attacked on September 11th and the following conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan have resulted in an increased number of veterans who have experienced traumatic brain injuries or TBIs to the point where TBIs are now called the signature injury of both of those wars. The DOD estimates that 22% of all combat injuries from those conflicts are brain injuries compared to 12% of Vietnam-related combat injuries. Key findings of a RAND research report focusing on veterans of both the Iraq and Afghanistan war indicate that roughly half of those that need treatment for these conditions, TBIs and associated PTSD seek it, but, and this is the kicker, only slightly more than half of those that receive care get minimally adequate care. So let's talk about scope here. Between 2000 and 2020, so the 20-year span really associated with those two wars, the Department of Defense reported 434,618 TBIs across U.S. service members worldwide. So today we're going to talk to Stephen Hernandez, have him share his story a bit, and then we're going to talk with Brooke about TBIs and some of the science behind Brooke. Brooke is the brain injury program manager from Madonna Rehab, headquartered in Lincoln, Nebraska. So Steve, let's let's jump in with your story. First question, when and where did you first decide that you were going to join the Air Force? Uh, I grew up originally in Orlando, Florida, and uh, I came from a long line of military veterans, uh, both my father and uh, grandfather uh, veterans. Grandfather was a Iwo Jima veteran. Um, and, you know, I needed to do something with my life, and I, I just knew this was kind of the path already set out in front of me that I wanted to go ahead and pursue. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't regret it for a second. Good deal. I've got a I've got a similar path that led me to uh, join the Air Force. It's always fun to talk about lineage and talk about what uh, past family members have done. The Iwo Jima story there, I'm sure, is phenomenal. Oh yeah, amazing. So, walk me through your military career from basic through what you did when you got out. Well, um, I joined June of 2001, um, right before 9/11. Right before 9/11, uh, I went down to a recruiter. And two weeks later, I was in basic training uh, thinking, <laughs> what, what was I thinking? How, how did I get here and why are people yelling so much? Um, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of a laid back person, so I, I, I don't get too worked up. 
And, uh, you know, I went through the worst time, June and July. If I can tell anybody who wants to join the Air Force, June and July is not the time to go through basic training. I went in May. It's not much better in May. (laughs) It's not. Um, So I I went in and, uh, yeah, open electronics, uh, oversold by a recruiter. Um, About six months in after basic training, uh, I ended up in uh, personnelist, uh, HR for the Air Force. I uh, really enjoyed that, and I got to do that for uh, seven years. I uh, had uh, three assignments, uh, Spangdalem Air Base in Germany, Thule Air Base Greenland, one of the only bases above the Arctic Circle in you've the world. You've had some tough locations that you've been assigned to. Uh, yeah, um, no no paved roads, no sidewalks, 24 hours of darkness, 24 hours of daylight. Um, and then um, I actually got down to a Navy base. I was stationed at NES Pensacola. Another tough um, one. So uh, while I was there, um, you know, in Pensacola, the Air Force switched over to a more virtual processing of your HR type environment. And uh, I ended up retraining uh, into <laughs> logistics planning, um, which I ended up loving. Um, it, it, you know, as you as a former LRO, uh, in charge of everything, responsible for nothing is one of those things that we uh, we like to say. Um, but it really is one of those front of the front of the line type uh, jobs that are required in the Air Force that a lot of people don't know a lot about. Um, but we're the guys who get you there and we're the guys who can get you home. Right. So uh, let's go back to the word virtual real quick. You say virtual. I say self-service. Self-service. Right. 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 Yep. Well, it, everything was called virtual. Just like in to the give Air the Force. personnel a hard time because yeah. it's always, well, you can do that by yourself, Major. Yeah, <laughs> but I need some help. Right, right, and that—that's right. ultimately the reason why I ended up re- retraining out because I was told, "Well, we need to make people more reliant." And I said, "Well, my position here is to help the people." Right. So if I'm not supposed to help them, I need a different job. Makes sense. So logistics planning, so getting people in and out of the door right. to deploy. So everything from equipment to transportation, whether they're taking right. a civilian charter to Afghanistan or whether they're taking a military right. uh, plane, et cetera, all those details that, I mean, we work for a trucking company, right? So logistics is our business, but it's even further compounded when you go to war. It, there's just a next level detail that goes into it. Correct. We we did everything to, you know, ensuring the right type of equipment was loaded in aircraft to get to uh, the location it needs to or uh, working with the personnel side again um, to ensure all of the people we were deploying were properly trained and equipped um, to meet the missions that were required of them. Good deal. So Pensacola made that transition. Right. Where, uh, where from there? So I went back to San Antonio, Texas okay. for tech school um, and then ended up at Luke Air Force Base uh, in, in uh, Glendale, Arizona. And in the four years I was there, I deployed three times. Okay. Wow. So it was very high ops tempo I, uh, for the position that I came into. And pri- prior to being a log planner, I, I never had that call up to the big leagues to deploy and, you know, provide that portion of what we do in the military. Um, my uh, first deployment was to uh, undisclosed location. So it's kind of cool that I get to still say right. we're not allowed to talk about it. Um, and then ultimately my second deployment to, was to Kabul, Afghanistan, um, which brought us here today. And I deployed even after that, um, again, uh, and, you know, we can touch on, you know, 
how that happened and, you know, where, where we are today. Certainly interesting current events, considering the events that are, or the news that is coming, the news cycle that's coming out of Afghanistan as we go under recording this. And I just read an article this morning about Kabul and Bagram and Kandahar and all the bases that you and I have spent some of our life right. at. Um, okay. So we'll, we'll go back to that second deployment here in a minute, but after that third deployment, you got out, right? Right. Uh, okay. I, I, well, uh, retired. Retired. Right. Okay. Um, what led you to Warner after that retirement? Um, I was actually stationed out here at Offit after Luke Air Force Base, and um, I I was looking for a respectable company to work for. Um, you know, that, that's one transition I think a lot of veterans, um, you know, we, we're – we are expected, you know, excellence, all we do, service before self or some of the core values of the Air Force. And, you know, I wanted to work somewhere that, one, I had a chance for growth, and two, that I could give that same type of service to that I spent in the Air Force on the civilian sector and grow and develop. I really think that calling for me is similar with Derek's quote that averages for others. And I really think that that just sums up so many of those core values that uh, you just chatted about. That's I, I want to be the best and that's, I'm surrounded by that every day, which is why I like working here. Um, so I don't think you mentioned, what do you, what do you do for Warner Logistics? So, uh, I came on and I, I actually, I run the third party, uh, I work in logistics and we do the contracts for all of our third party carriers. Um, so we manage roughly about 33,000 contracts, uh, going across everything from truckload logistics to intermodal to our newest addition, uh, with the final mile team. Okay. So just a, a, years few, back. a few pieces of paper, just a couple, yep. just a couple. Okay. And we monitor compliance of all those carriers to make sure they're meeting our expectations and the safety to be on the road. Okay. That's certainly sounds like a busy job with, with not necessarily a big team to do it. Right. Yep. Right. Um, let's go back to that second deployment that we touched on a little bit earlier. Where, where were you? You said Kabul, right? Right. So I, I was, no, no. Actually I, in Kabul. I was actually in Kabul at a, a location called Camp Phoenix. Okay. Uh, we were right there on the main Jalalabad highway. So we were pretty exposed quite often. Um, I mean, we had a highway running right in front of our camp. Um, uh, right. And we were 15 minutes from Kabul International, uh, which we would drive to quite often. Uh, to make sure we were, you know, getting eyes on all the airmen uh, coming into to that region. Okay, certainly a busy a busy hub of the Afghanistan war for Americans that were there in support of it. Right, absolutely. I, I, we we every airman that came in to Kabul, Afghanistan, we had eyes on because okay. we were the uh, we took care of them. That was our job. Again, going back to taking care of people. Okay, and what what happened there that led you to be a wounded warrior? Um. So 26 Jan uh, 2010, uh, we were going up towards the front gate for another convoy. And, uh, you know, there's some walking outside the vehicle to make sure, you know, safety purposes. Uh, we drove everything from MRAPs down to uh, up armored Humvees. Um, and next thing I knew, I was laying on the ground and don't have a lot of, rec you know, a lot of memory of the events that took place. Uh, but we had a microbus of uh, 3,500 pounds explode uh, from about 100 yards away from us. Those microbuses are the like the 12-person little... Uh, Looked like Volkswagen. Yep. Okay. Um, and from, our, from what we know, about 3,500 pounds of explosives uh, was in the vehicle. Um, I got up off the ground. 
And I, I thought to myself, why why am I laying on the ground in Kabul, Afghanistan? Not a place you right. you want, especially want to lay down. Um, I got up and, you know, I, I, I had a lot of, it just didn't feel right. I, it was very off. Um, and, you know, vision was a little blurred. Uh, hearing was definitely out uh, for a little bit. And, and, you know, I went over to our medic location. Um, luckily enough that day, nobody but the suicide bomber uh, was lost. We had some injuries. That's phenomenal. Um, with 3,500 pounds of with explosives. With 3,500 pounds. Uh, the from the video footage, we saw the the driver drop the detonator. Talk about terrible aim. And right. that, yeah, yeah, and that's ultimately what what you know saved a, a lot of lives because he dropped Amazing. that detonator. And um, the footage I saw, you could see um, our guys, the our, our fellow, because we were at an army fob or army post, uh, were able to jump over barriers um, to ultimately you know save their lives because they were we we knew this guy was out there. We didn't know what he was doing. So, you know, just like anything else, we, we want to investigate. Right. So um, he came in on the highway. Right. He right came to the in gate. right to the gate. Okay. Um, and uh, the, the video, you could watch the blast. You could watch that concussive blast, I believe it's called, um, come our way. Um, so uh, I about stayed there, finished the remainder of my tour. Um, I had, uh, I left February 14th. Um, which was, uh, you know, I was just happy to get out of there. Um, and that, and, you know, and to my knowledge at that point there, I was fine. I was perfectly hearing, fine. Hearing recovered. Uh, yep. you, you got picked up. You didn't have many, uh, right. scrapes, well, right, bruises. Yeah. Nothing, nothing physically, you know, a, a couple of days later, the hearing came back. Um, and then being a log planner, I was just super excited to go home. So I controlled the route. I went right, home. Absolutely. That's and one of the be- so, best benefits of that job. Yeah. So I actually made sure I went through Germany. I was like, oh, I want to go to Germany on the way home. But, um, it got home and that's, that's kind of when, you know, I had where I feel personally where there's a, you know, a combo of mixed misdiagnosis, uh, with the PTSD and, uh, you know, compound it with the TBI that was not discovered till five years later. Okay. It's, it's amazing that it, and especially in today's day and age, and we'll get into the, some of the, the testing here, I'm sure with Brooke in a minute, but you got blown up for all intents and purposes, right? right? I mean, right. woke up on the ground and we still had trouble diagnosing a TBI and all the consequential, right. I mean, just imagine the good that would have come for Steve if you had gotten that TBI, hey, you've got you've likely got a TBI five years earlier, right? Um, there's just so much additional benefit going back to that uh, half of those service members that get TBI, have a TBI, get care. Half right. of that half get minimally adequate care, and this is the story. Your story just speaks to that, right? Right. Um, you know, I, I got home, and you know. I, yeah, there were other events that took place in Kabul that led to me needing some additional help once right. I returned home. Um, consequence of being in that uh, yeah, environment. Yeah, very. Uh, we were on the road every day, uh, thirty five hundred miles, uh, convoyed, which is you know pretty uncommon for a true all Air Force team that is not uh, what the Air Force likes to call combat truckers. Right. Um, you know, we we were a very small um, dislocation to that location. And uh, when I got home, yeah, there there were there were some outside issues going on. Well, in um, 3,500 miles, and your injury didn't happen on the road. 
Right. It, you you hadn't left base yet. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Well, it was towards the end of my tour, so we we had. No, no, but oh, yeah, that you day. were on base when when that, that day, when right. that explosion happened. Right. And it, it's just amazing to me that it, it, those typically those convoys are not terribly long distance convoys, right? So no. thir- to gather up thirty five hundred miles, you had to do a lot of them. Right. Right. Yep. We were we were pretty much outside the wire every day. Um, with part of, you know, just the job and, you know, I, I still love it. I still love that. I got to do there. Uh, I got to be part of that. And some of the things that we did, like help opening the first all girls school in Kabul, Afghanistan was, you know, some of my proudest moments in my life while still at the same time being in one of the worst times of, you know, my life with, you know, the results that came out of it. So, you know, I, I, I love it. And I, you know, I loved doing the good that we were doing while we we're there, that's often not highlighted in the, uh, in the war and the TVs, you know, TV channels that they, they talk about. Right. News, news coverage of that right. entire Iraq and Afghanistan. Right. Both of those wars sucks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of good that took yes, place. Absolutely. There was. Um, how are you doing now? I mean, fast forward 11 years. Uh, good. I mean, so I got home and I, I, I had issues and uh, ultimately I had a great supervisor, uh, Mr. Carbone. He said, Steve, you go get help, uh, meaning go to mental health. Uh, Air Force does have a great mental health team, or we send you. And if you go on your own, you self-report, you go ahead and you get treatment a little bit differently. Um, and, you know, it, it, I, I went through that, went through that process, and I, I got to off it. And they asked, well, you know, some of your labs are a little off. You know, we want to go ahead. Uh, did you ever have, where's your MRI from when you were in Afghanistan? I was like, well, you guys are the medical people. Right. Uh, you should have it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, and ultimately, you know, I didn't have one. So they, we went through the process, got one. Um, and I get a phone call from the, from the doctors over at the med clinic and they say, Hey, you need to come in right away. <laughs> and it's like, okay. So I drop what I'm doing. I head over and they said, well, we discovered you have brain lesions and then walked out of the room. <laughs> so, you know, naturally, like anybody else, Google, <laughs> which don't Google brain lesions because right. uh, they're, you know, just like anything else on Google, you're, you're going to get so much inf- misinformation and not knowing what exactly is your case. And uh, ultimately, I ended up from that point forward. That was when the process of becoming a wounded warrior started, um, and you know, I started seeing uh, a specialist for TBI. Um, very, very nice lady, and we did a lot of puzzles. Um, I, if I never have to do a puzzle again <laughs> in my life, um, I'll be great. I'll be super happy. There were a lot of puzzles I just couldn't do. I, you know, she was like, "Make this." You That's know, it, every puzzle I've ever touched. Right. <laughs> so. Um, you know, I went through that process and, you know, it, it was bittersweet. You know, it was not the way I had pictured my military career to end. Um, but I did get to fully retire with uh, benefits, um, which, you know, I had in full intentions, which last month would have been my 20 year anniversary. So I would have been retirement eligible. We would be having right. a different conversation now. Um, I'd be looking to say, hey, Adam, are you guys hiring? Um <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, I'm relatively a happy person. You know, I, I, there's still some differences in, you know, with me. You know, some of it I call it my veteran's humor. Um, so I do realize that some of that is also my, uh, the results of my TBI. Um, so 
Um, I like to say I have a very thin filter. Um, and some stuff does get filtered out, but I tend to really, which I feel is just speak my mind. Right. Um, my, not, wife, my wife calls that speaking the truth. Yeah. yeah sometimes the, not everybody enjoys the truth. Right. So um, <laughs> you, you have to be careful of who, who you're telling the truth to. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, I'm relatively happy. I, I've settled down in the civilian world, uh, married with uh, six kids. So retired as a wounded warrior. Right. Right. So just, just for those that don't know, uh, the wounded warrior program, congressionally mandated, uh, federally funded. It's an organization tasked with taking care of wounded, ill, injured airmen, veterans, and, and their families, wholly different from the charity with a similar name. Just want to draw that line. Um, and their, their main mission is to provide restorative care, uh, throughout that airman's transition back to duty, or to separation or eventually like yourself to retirement. Um, and their goal is to leave the service member well-equipped to manage challenges regardless of their injury or illness or TBI or state of uh, medical condition. Um, man, that's a heck of a story. Uh, thanks. Thanks for sharing. Not a problem. It's just phenomenal. Um, I'm always amazed by, so this is the, like Johnny said, this is the second edition of uh, Vet Voices that we've done. Uh, we spoke with Billy last time and there's so many more stories like Billy has, like Steve has. And I'm just, um, yeah, I love working for this company, love hearing the stories, love the the stories of commitment, of service, and then continuing that on with Warner. Uh, so let's pivot this discussion to to Brooke. Um, so Brooke, thanks for taking time. I know you drove up from Lincoln today. Uh, and let's just start our conversation with a quick intro. Who, who are you? What do you do? Um, how long you've been with the Madonna, et cetera. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm definitely honored to be invited to talk about what I do every day and working with individuals from all walks of life with different types of brain injuries, um, veterans for sure. And thank you so much for your service. It's again, an honor to be here with you and sharing in your story and how rehab and brain injury kind of all fits into that. So my name's Brooke Murtaugh. Um, I'm an occupational therapist by training. I graduated with my doctorate in occupational therapy from Creighton University here in Omaha back in 2004 and started working at Madonna Rehabilitation Hospital in Lincoln, Nebraska in 2006. So I'm coming up on my 15-year anniversary, I believe. Um, during that time, I was able to kind of float around the hospital wherever they needed me, and I was really drawn to um, the patient population that had sustained either traumatic or non-traumatic brain injuries. Um, the reason being is because that was the one population that we serve where I'd see those individuals one week and two weeks later when I would float and see them again, they looked incredibly different, had made a ton of progress. And I was like, oh, man, I want to be part of that. Um, I want to, you know, serve those individuals who it really is a hidden injury because you haven't lost a limb, you haven't broken a bone, you're not paralyzed, you're not necessarily in a wheelchair. And so looking at these individuals on the surface, they look fine. Um, so being able to help those survivors, you know, recover, 
get back to life, get back to home. Um, I'm primarily inpatient where those who have sustained a brain injury who are relatively sick and still need to be in the hospital, that's where I treat. Um, Lots lots of car accidents. Uh, Lots of car accidents. However, if you look at the statistics, the number one reason for traumatic brain injury is falls. Falls, you know, are geriatric populations that are having age-related balance issues. Um, You know, young people maybe not doing what they should be doing and jumping off of things. Um, Yeah, so falls really is the number one leading cause, but then accidents after that as well, car accidents. So let's just chat about TBIs. I I have a basic, very basic understanding, and I'd like to say Steve's story is rare in the veteran community, but these days it's just not. That's not not what those numbers support. What is a TBI? So a traumatic brain injury is an injury to the brain caused by a bump or blow to the head. And because of those, you know, going back to high school physics, the velocity of either your head hitting something or an object hitting your head causes this reverberation of the brain. And if you've ever been able to hold a brain, a human brain. I've never, um, I've never had that experience. I, <laughs> I did in gross anatomy, my very favorite class in grad school, like lifting the brain out of the skull during dissection of a human. I was, I know that sounds like really barbaric, but I was like, this is amazing. This thing of jelly, which it really does feel like jello, like firm jello makes us who we are, how we move, how we talk, how we think, how we feel. You know, the language that we use, the dreams that we have, I mean, it's all coming from the brain. And it's really just this blob of jello substance, really. But it's billions and billions of neurons. Um, Okay, so you have a bumper blow to the head. The brain kind of shakes inside the skull like a ricochet. And that can cause, especially with a veteran population, in Steve's case, where it's been that concussion, like, you know, that explosion has just shaken the brain, even though maybe nothing came into contact with your head, just the sheer force of the explosion caused your brain to shake around in your head. And it caused this pulling and tearing of the neuronal connections in your brain. So then one neuron can't communicate effectively with the next one. And that's how your brain works normally is all these neurons with different connections called axons allow your brain to do what it does every day without us obviously even thinking about it. But once an injury happens, the neurons can't communicate effectively. So then you get your symptoms of headaches, visual changes, hearing changes, memory changes like what I knew I was supposed to do something. What was that supposed to be? Or you told me that. I don't remember you telling me that five minutes ago or yesterday. Um, Even sometimes to the fact of you drive down the road, you get in your car and drive down the road, and you're like, where was I going? You know, those types of symptoms are caused by those neurons not working effectively after an injury. It seems like it's the type of injury that has a huge impact, obviously, on the patient. Yes. But then also the family as well. And I'm I'm sure Steve would allude to that as well. The impact on the family has got to be huge. Right, right. They, So I came home and, you know, I had uh, two children at the time. 
And, you know, I essentially was a different person. Uh, I came home, I was not the same person. I think war in itself in itself is enough to do that. Right. I, I know that in conversation with my wife, pre and post, that was enough for me. And I, I, I've never been blown up. I don't have a TBI that I'm aware of. So adding that TBI onto that experience is, uh, again, I, I'm just humbled that to talk with you, to have your story shared, and your wife probably has a better story than you do. I honestly, in dealing with you and dealing with everything that happened afterwards, right? Like, there's just got to be a lot of. She's got to be a saint. Well, first or second? Second. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so really, really enjoy the second one. Um, <laughs> and there's there's reasons why you end up with the second one, but um, even even now, you know, with my wife, um, she. She sees, you know, certain things and certain aspects of me and, you know, there, there, there's not a, a why is something happening. It's just, you know, it's happening and personality wise and again, you know, Steve's honesty <laughs> level, um, you know, it, it's not always necessarily me being, you know, necessarily grumpy at the time or, um, you know, you know, some of the other lingering effects of, you know, PTSD and stuff like that. But, you know, there's honestly, I, you know, I suffer from migraines uh, very, very badly. And, you know, personality wise, I did see a big personality. And from my understanding with the frontal lobe of my injuries, that is pretty much where your personality is maintained. Yeah. Um, so there is a huge change. And I mean, she puts up with me. So, you know, that's always a positive, you know, aspect of being married and having her meet me post, um, you know, the injuries right. and that personality change. And, you know, I, I, it's something I deal with every day, day in, day out. Um, you know, it's, but, I, you know, I, I, make, I make do and I, I continue on life and that's pretty much what you have to do. Right. So, Brooke, we mentioned earlier half get the treatment, half seek treatment, and then half of those that seek treatment get minimally adequate. I'm not sure exactly how that research report defined minimally adequate. I, I read through it. I don't recall it. Um, why, why do you think that is? Why is this such a hard thing to get treated? I, uh, from, from the guy inside of me, I really think I, I might have a difficult time coming forward and saying, hey, I have this invisible injury. Right. I, I think right. I'd, I'd have a tough time doing that. Yeah. Um, but obviously talking about it is vitally important. Absolutely. Any input there from the care side of things? Yeah. So I have several different thoughts. First, I want to go back to the comment about families. And yes, brain injury not only happens to the survivor like you, Steve, but it happens to the whole family unit. Um, you know, I think of brain injury and it's very much described in the literature as an ambiguous loss, regardless of severity, you know, from mild to moderate to severe, because the person's changed. The person's different because the brain has changed. It's been injured. It's been changed. It has a miraculous ability to heal and, you know, overcome, but it's still going to be different forever. So the person is there. They look the same but they're not the same person. And so not only for the survivor, but especially for the family, it's a very ambiguous loss. It's very difficult to grieve and move on because it's not a loss as you would think of somebody passing away. So it does happen to the family, and we do a ton of family education and support at Madonna for any of our families that whose loved one has had a brain injury. 
So then moving on to your question, Adam, about adequate care. Um, yeah, unfortunately, those statistics, we see it every day. Every day at Madonna, we will have veterans and civilians come through our mild traumatic brain injury um, evaluation clinic. And sometimes they are years down the road and have just had this um, fractured care of, you know, well, first I went to a chiropractor because my neck hurt. And then I went to a pain specialist because I had migraines. Well, then I went to a ophthalmologist because of my vision. Everybody's telling me to do different things, but nothing's working. And then some, you know, they sent me to a psychiatrist who started me on all these meds. Um, and so it's fractured care and the right hand isn't talking to the left hand. And it really does need for any treatment of brain injury needs to be a transdisciplinary approach where all team members and all specialists are working together and communicating. Which I really think is one of the key tenets of Madonna. Yes. Right? So everybody's in-house or can be in-house and yeah. that care can be provided. Yes, absolutely. It, and the unfortunate thing is, is if you are not getting to the right people right away, it's not um, it's not common knowledge that, hey, here are the places that have this transdisciplinary care model that can really get you the help you need as quickly as you need it. You know, unfortunately, your primary care physicians or your neurologists, they're not necessarily brain injury specialists. At Madonna and other, you know, specialized rehabilitation um, organizations across the country, they do brain injury every day. We see 1,500 patients a year between Madonna Lincoln and Madonna Omaha of every severity. We do it every day. And we see all presentations of it. So it's nothing that we haven't seen before. And we have a pretty good idea of what we need to do. Um, and it's our job and one of our missions to get that. And my mission as a brain injury specialist and program manager to get that information out there, that these services are available to anybody who needs them. Um, and again, the more quickly you can get to them and get your needs and your symptoms treated in a holistic fashion, the better the outcomes. Obviously having a TBI linger. Five years, five years is not is not a healthy thing. No, it's, the symptoms. I mean, they might manifest differently, possibly, but they it, it, they don't go away, and they don't, they don't get, go they away. Don't, they don't get better. No, okay. not, I mean, not without treatment. I you know, I want definitely want to provide hope to anybody who's listening that even if you're five, six, seven years down the road, things can still get better. However, the longer that the symptoms have had to kind of worm into the brain and the brain gets into a bad habit, the chemicals have been off chronically for years, you know, it just is a longer road to hoe to get symptom relief. Um, but it still can get better or there can be strategies that can be taught of, okay, I'm having a migraine or my memory's not super great, but here's some compensatory strategies to help me cope and deal and adjust on those days that aren't so great. Um, you know, and Steve, you didn't say it, but maybe this might be your experience. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but going that long undiagnosed and not feeling like yourself, 
migraines, anxiety, depression, behavioral changes, you know, without a name, people really feel like I've lost it. Like, what is wrong with me? I'm going crazy. And sometimes that's more traumatic than actually having the diagnosis. And once we can put a name to it and be like, okay, this is what we're dealing with. Once we know we have a diagnosis, then we can develop a treatment plan. But until that time, we're just kind of floating around trying, you know, throw something at it to see if it sticks. No, I I absolutely agree. I mean, you basically described that 2010 to 2015 journey um, for me uh, with, you know, going to see this specialist or go endocrinologist, going to see a hearing specialist, going to see this specialist, um, you know, here's different medications, try this, try that. There's a lot of trying um, and ultimately not till, you know, just on the off chance, somebody said, well, how, how does your brain look? Yeah. Uh, was I ever did stuff start to truly make sense that, hey, there is something, you know, underlying. There is something that is truly not just Steve being. Yeah, it's not. Uh, having I mean, issues. it's in your head, but it's not in your head. So I want to start to wrap this up a little bit. Brooke, thank you for coming out today. Thank you for all of the knowledge. Um, I think I'll probably have to listen to it two or three <laughs> times to really digest some of the words that you tossed out. Um, but it's clear that you're passionate for what you do. And Steve and I both appreciate you coming out. Johnny, but the whole company does. Yeah. So, thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, th- I could talk about this all day long. <laughs> if you can't tell. Maybe maybe we'll have a, a second edition to just answer all the questions that come up. Um, okay. So wrapping this up, I want to talk briefly about another study. Um, Brown University, uh, their cost of war project did this study. And they found that an estimated 30,000 veterans of the post 9-11 wars have died by suicide, uh, which is significantly more than the 7,000 members killed in combat operations during that same time frame. So 30,000 by suicide, 7,000 by combat. And I think that really speaks to some of that discussion that we just had of going undiagnosed for five years and yeah. thinking that you're crazy. Maybe that's not exactly the way you put it, <laughs> No, but, uh, but not having something to blame, not having a path forward uh, of treatment, right. that's got to be tough on you. And I, I tend to go immediately to the family and the kiddos. That's got to be tough on a spouse. That's got to be tough on a little girl or a little boy that's watching you uh, as they grow up. Um, so they, the cost of war project um, lists multiple factors uh, coming into play that leads to this disparity between suicide and then combat death. Um, But they include high exposure to trauma, stress, and then difficulty reintegrating into the civilian community post military career or post deployment. Um, And the study actually goes on to link the rise of IEDs uh, and the attendant rise in TBIs to that increase in suicide uh, amongst the military community, um, which I thought was a fascinating, uh, just a conclusion to some of the the topics that we've talked about today. Um, so consequently, and in closing, I simply want to draw attention to the Department of VA's Veteran Crisis Line. Uh, so if you're a veteran in crisis or concerned about one, uh, reach out. That crisis line can be reached by dialing one 273 
8255. So again, 1-800-273-8255 or simply by texting 838255. I'll link those details in the notes when we release this podcast as well. Uh, So Steve, thanks for your service. Thanks for your willingness to share your story. Uh, Brooke, thanks again for your time. Um, I greatly appreciate you both. Johnny, thanks for letting us borrow the space and record yet another one um, of these Vet Voice podcasts. And I know we're short on time, but I'm so passionate about the long-term impact of brain injury. And you bring up such a great point about suicide. And we know veterans are at a high risk because of post-traumatic stress and what you have experienced during service and deployment. Take an individual with a brain injury who hasn't been a service member. They too are at three to four times higher risk of suicide after their injury. Put those two together. You're a veteran with a brain injury and PTSD. And so it's so incredibly important to know that it's okay. That's common. I would think if you weren't a veteran with a BI, not having experienced that, then you're doing pretty darn well. So be talking to somebody and be reaching out because it is a serious risk. It is a thing. And there is help out there for those that are having suicidal ideation. And, yep. it, and it's common with both of those arms. PTSD, TBI, put them together. It's the perfect storm. Absolutely. Thank, thank you yes, uh, thank so much you. for your time. Steve, thanks again. All right, team. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Brooke, for being here. Also, special thanks to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces and our allies all over the world. Uh, For us, we're just kind of doing a podcast in a room, but for those brave men and women putting their lives on the line each and every day, there is no pause button for a podcast. So we just like to say thank you, uh, active duty, thank you, reserves, and especially thank you, veterans, for your service and your sacrifice.